Would you please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5? We'll be looking at verses 3 to 5 this morning. So if you're not familiar with this section of Scripture, uh, this is one of the most famous sections of Scripture that we have. Uh, Matthew 5, 3 to 10 is what we call the Beatitudes. And if you're sitting out there and you have no idea what the word beatitude means, it's okay because we don't really use that word that often. In fact, this is about the only place where that word is used. But before I tell you what a beatitude is, what it means, I want to give you just a little bit of context about this passage here. So right before this passage in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus, he calls the disciples And then he goes around, he starts preaching, he starts teaching, uh, he's doing miraculous works, he's healing people. And so you have this guy that's doing some amazing things, he's he's teaching in ways that people had never heard about, teaching ways that they'd never heard before. Uh, He's healing people, and so naturally naturally this crowd starts to gather around him, and and they follow him around, and eventually you have this huge crowd that's following Jesus. And so what Matthew records is that that Jesus and this huge crowd that's following him, he goes over to this mountain, and Jesus gets on the side of this mountain, and he looks down at the people, and he starts preaching to them. And so he delivers the greatest sermon that's ever been delivered. And so Matthew 5 through 7, we have the Sermon on the Mount, is what we call it. And so it's this wonderful sermon, and here's what this sermon is about. The kingdom of God and how we're to live our lives as kingdom citizens. That's what he talks about for the next three chapters. So it's how do we live as members of the kingdom of God? And so it's in the Sermon on the Mount we get such things like turn the other cheek, if you've heard that before, or or, the gate is narrow, the way is hard. The Lord's Prayer is also in Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount. And so if I haven't lost you yet, this is why I'm telling you this. Why does this matter? Well, this is why this matters. The Sermon on the Mount, it it opens with the Beatitudes. And so the first thing Jesus says in this amazing sermon is the Beatitudes. And so here's what a Beatitude is. It just means blessed. It it means a blessing. And so it's in these verses, verses 3 to 10, that we see this word blessed eight times. And so there's eight blessings here. There's, There's eight Beatitudes. And so in the South today... This word may not mean much to us because we, we say things like, like, we're too blessed to be stressed or, or bless your heart. But when the Bible says the word blessed, it's, it's this divine happiness. And so the blessed life is the happy life. And so this is relevant to every single one of our lives because a lot of us spend time thinking about and making decisions on how can we maximize our happiness in this life. What, what college can I go to to maximize the happiness of my college experience? What, what job can I take that can maximize the happiness for me and for my family? Uh, we're all in the business of trying to maximize the happiness that we can get in our lives. Who should we be around? Ultimately, everyone is looking for happiness. Every one of us is looking for happiness. There's a 17th century mathematician and theologian, his name's Blaise Pascal. This is what Blaise Pascal says. He says, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves. 
we're all looking for happiness. How can I be happy in this life? And so here's the point. And this is why this passage is so important for us. Everybody wants to be happy. Even Harvard University is interested in this question. Since 1938, they've been doing this study on what makes people happy. And I'm quoting here because I don't really know what this means, but it's the longest in-depth longitudinal study on human life ever done. That's impressive, right? Harvard is asking this question. They're trying to figure out how can people be happy? And so it's here in this passage, Matthew 5, 3 to 10, that we find that Jesus, that what he says, the key to happiness and what's the good, how we get the good life that we all want. How can I be happy? And so the rest of this summer, we're going to be looking at this passage. We're going to be looking at what Jesus says here about the good life, the happy life. And so I've been shown a lot of great things about this passage by some really, really smart people. So I'd be remiss if I didn't say I'm indebted to guys like Sinclair Ferguson and D.A. Carson, Ian Duguid, Matt Howell, lots of others. So let's read God's Word and see what He has to say. I'm going to read the whole uh, seven verses. We're just going to be talking about uh, three to five today, though. So if you'd join me, follow along with me. Matthew 5, 3 through 10. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That ends the reading of God's word this morning. Would you join me in prayer as we, as we seek his help to try to understand uh, this passage? Father, you're a holy God. You're a loving God. Father, we thank you that you care about creatures such as ourselves. Well, we thank you that you want us to be happy. And so, Father, we ask that as we look into this famous passage, these Beatitudes, that you would show us the key to the happy life, the key to the good life. But, Father, what we really want to see, that that key is Jesus. And so, we ask that you show us Jesus this morning. We pray this in the name of your Son. Amen. So, as I was studying the Beatitudes and thinking about uh, this passage, just kind of dwelling on it, my mind kept going back to a scene from a movie that's an American classic. It's the story of a main character that he's seeking happiness through fame, through success. He's living life in the fast lane. And then he ends up finding happiness in a place where he least expects it. And so, I'm talking about the movie, the Pixar movie, Cars. Probably many of us have seen it. And so there's this scene in Cars where Lightning McQueen, he's the main character of this movie, he's out on this dirt track. And he's, and he's doing laps around this track and he comes up to this curve and he can't make it. He slides and he goes off the track and he gets frustrated and he tries it over and over again, turning around this track, going in circles, flying off the track. So all of a sudden, eventually this, this, this older character, Doc Hudson, comes up and he starts watching him. He sees him fail time and time again. And so Doc Hudson gives Lightning McQueen some advice. Some of you probably know it. He says, turn right to go left. Turn right to go left. 
And I love Lightning McQueen's answer here. This is what Lightning McQueen says. He says, turn right to go left. Yes, thank you. Or should I say no thank you? Because in opposite world, maybe that really means thank you. Right? Here's the point. The advice that Doc gives is the opposite of what you think it would be. You know, he's trying to turn left, and, and Doc says, turn right to go left. It's, it's, it's opposite world is what Lightning McQueen says. And so this is what happens in the Beatitudes. I, I've heard some people call it the upside-down kingdom. I've heard Bill say that about this passage. It's the upside-down kingdom. Uh, I like to call it opposite world. And so today, we're going to be in opposite world for a little bit. And this is what I mean. If I were to ask you to write down a list of things or, or a list of characteristics that you could have to be a successful human, our lists are probably going to often think of like winners, P- people who are at the top, uh, athletes, musicians, politicians, social media influencers, you know, the, the people who've made it. That's who has the happy life is what we think. But what Jesus says is that this is not the case. It's, it's not the people at the top, but, but it's actually the people at the bottom. And so the first example is this beatitude, the blessed are the poor in spirit. Would that have made your list? You see, here's what's happening. Jesus, he's coming onto the scene and he's telling you about life, what it looks like under the new king. There's a new regime and it looks a whole lot, it looks a whole lot different than the world that we currently live in. So one more thing about these Beatitudes, just a disclaimer. This is important here. One one commentator puts it this way. He says, these are not tasks that we can do, then check off on a list. They're defining characteristics, they're heart habits that mark the core of our being. Forgive the pun, but these Beatitudes are the attitudes that we're to be, right? It's talking about our heart and our posture. It's not a checklist of things for you to do. So this morning, Throw y'all a curveball. I've only got two points for us. Two points for us. And it's really just two questions that I want to ask. And so the first question is this, is what does the good life look like? What, what does the happy life look like? And the second question, very simple, why? Why? So what does, the good li- what does the good life look like and why? So let's get our first point. What does the good life look like? And another way we can ask this is, is who has the good life? What qualities describe the person that has the good life? And so we get this answer in the first three Beatitudes. I like to call these the Beatitudes of need, right? These are the Beatitudes of need. And I'll explain more what I mean by that as we kind of go forward. But, but let's look at these three Beatitudes here. We have blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, and blessed are the meek. And so what we're going to see is that each one of these builds on the one that comes before it. There's this this logical order to the Beatitudes. And so the first leads to the second, the second leads to the third. So let's dive in. Let's start with the poor in spirit and see what does that mean? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, if you're financially poor, what it means is that you don't have the resources to take care of yourself. But here he's not talking about a financial poor, he's talking about a spiritual poor. In other words, blessed is the one who is spiritually bankrupt. Blessed is the one who is spiritually bankrupt. It's it's knowing that spiritually speaking, we don't have any resources within ourselves to save ourselves. And so this is why I opened with that quote from Rock of Ages today. 
Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Being being poor in spirit is that idea of nothing in my hands. I can't bring anything. And so if you want a picture of what being poor in spirit is, that's the line. It's knowing that we bring nothing to the table, therefore we look to God for help. There's another commentator that says this. He says, one of the first steps on the road to becoming a Christian is coming to the point in our lives when we see that our own personal goodness is not good enough to measure to God's standards. The first thing, one of the first things we realize as Christians is that our own personal goodness isn't enough. That that, that we have nothing. And so this is so difficult because our natural bent is inward at ourselves. Uh, We can easily be full of ourselves. We we have this overinflated sense of self-importance, even self-righteousness in our lives. And so if you're anything like me, I'm always trying to justify it. And that's the culture that we live in, the the you-do-you culture, that, that anything that you think is right But what this passage says is that those who are in Christ Jesus, this is not the way. And so Romans 3 talks about this a lot. It goes into great depths talking about our condition. We read that chapter, we see that instead of being self-sufficient and being acceptable just the way that we are, we see that even by our nature we're rebels against God. It goes down to our very fabric of being that we're rebels We see that we've broken his commandments, that that there's actually not a shred of goodness in us. But don't just take my word for it. Listen to what Romans 3, 10 to 12 says. None is righteous. None. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. And this is hard for us to believe because we think, well, I'm not actually that bad. You know, sure, I'm not perfect, but but it's not like I'm some kind of axe murderer. You know, I'm not that good. I'm not that bad. But the words of Scripture is that no one is righteous. None of us have done enough good. None of us can ever do enough good to save ourselves. We're utterly condemned by our sin, and so this is tough. This this is hard for us to hear. And so I'm not saying this just to beat you up and to, to, to leave and, and to feel sorry for ourselves. I'm saying this to show us how helpless we are apart from Christ. We are helpless outside of Christ. And so when we come face to face with our sin, we see that our only our hope, the only hope that we have comes from the Lord. It's not from within ourselves. And that's what it looks like to be poor in spirit. And I love what D.A. Carson says. He says, it's not surprising then that the kingdom of heaven belongs to the poor in spirit. We see at the very beginning that we do not have the spiritual resource to put any of what the sermon teaches into practice. Now listen to this right here. He says, we must come to him and acknowledge our spiritual bankruptcy, emptying ourselves of our self-righteousness, moral self-esteem, and personal vainglory. Emptied of these things, we are ready for him to fill us. There it is again. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. So blessed are the poor in spirit, the spiritually bankrupt. The second beatitude of need is is blessed are those who mourn. And, And again, this sounds like opposite world, right? Happy are those who are sad. Happy are those who are sad. And so what does he mean when he says blessed are those who mourn? Are Christians just supposed to be sad all the time? 
And so when we think about this, something we need to remember is that these attitudes are describing uh, in this list, they're all spiritual. And so when he brings up mourning, he's not talking about ordinary mourning, he's talking about a spiritual mourning. And so when he speaks of mourning here, it's a mourning over our own sin. And so here's the logic, y'all. If being poor in spirit is recognizing that we're sinners, then the second step is mourning that fact. If I'm able to look at myself and say, I'm a sinner, the next step is hating that. I mourn over my sin. Uh, Think about Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah, he has this vision of the Lord. He has this vision of God. And his immediate response after he sees, he says, woe is me, woe. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Isaiah, he's able to look at himself and say, woe, because I'm so sinful. I mourn my sin. There's a missionary in the 1700s named David Brainerd, and he was a missionary to the Native Americans here in our country. And he wrote in his journal one day these words. He says, in my morning devotions, my soul was exceedingly melted and bitterly mourned over my exceeding sinfulness and vileness. This is a guy who's bringing the gospel to an unreached people group. And it says that he was melted over his exceeding sinfulness and vileness. Could you imagine being melted over your sin and what that looks like? But it's not just mourning over our own sin that we do. It's also mourning over the sin of the world, over over living in a fallen world. Mourning when bad things happen. Mourning cruelty that can exist in our world. And so when we stop, we look around at the state of this world, we, we, we have to say, like, how can we not mourn? How can we not mourn? Because do you know that this is not how it was supposed to be? It was not supposed to be like this. Adam and Eve, they were in paradise. We were meant to be in paradise. And they walked with God. They had great joy. They ate the greatest food. They worked. They saw the fruits of their labor. It was perfect the way that God intended it to be. Instead, we look around at our world. We see catastrophic implosions. We see school shootings. We see riots, global instability, wars, the prospect of war for us. We can even look at our own lives. Depression, anxiety, rampant. It's the highest levels it's ever been. Some of us come from broken families. Some of us struggle with addiction. We struggle with body image, loneliness, peer pressure, relationships, trauma, acceptance. The list goes on and on and on about the broken things of this world. Y'all, it was not supposed to be this way. If that all bothers you, Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. Third beatitude of need is blessed are the meek. And so Jesus, he starts with those who are spiritually bankrupt. We know that we have no resources to save ourselves. Then he moves to Christians, mourn the fact that we're sinners, that we live in a sin-touched world, a fallen world. And so if those first two things are true, what this should do is it should produce a meekness within you. And so here we go again back to opposite world, okay? Our culture laughs at this. They say meekness is weakness. But again, Jesus' kingdom, life as a Christian is radically different from our world. There's an old pastor named Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he's written one of the best commentaries on the Sermon on the Mount that's out there. And this is how he defines meekness. A humble and gentle attitude 
to others based on a true estimate of ourselves. A humble and gentle attitude towards others based off of a true estimate of ourselves. And so we've already talked this morning about the true estimate of ourselves. We're filled with sin. We're filled with weakness. And so if we recognize that, if we mourn that, what it should do is produce a humility and a gentleness within us. Listen to what Sinclair Ferguson says. There is probably no more beautiful quality in a Christian than meekness. You agree with that? There's probably no more beautiful quality in a Christian than meekness. It enhances manliness. It adorns femininity. It is a jewel polished by grace. But it is all too rare. Is that because so few of us know what it is to be poor in spirit and to mourn for our sins? Do we look at meekness like this, or do we look at it and scoff at it like the world does? And so we ask this question in the first point. What does the good life look like? Who has the good life? What qualities make up the one who has the good life? And the answer that we get is one that seems to just not make sense. Right? It's the spiritually bankrupt. It's those who are overwhelmed with sorrow over their own sin and the effects of sin. It's those who the world would call weak. It's those who are taken advantage of. And so who has the happy life? It's not those who are on top. But rather, it's those who are on the bottom, those who know that they're helpless, those who know their need. And so if you're a Christian this morning, are these things that you would describe yourself with, poor in spirit, as mourners, as the meek? So that brings us to our second question this morning is why? Why is it these things, not the strong and the proud? Well, here's why. Because it's only those people who are at the bottom that are in a position to understand grace. It's only the people at the bottom who are, under, are in a position to understand grace. Now, let me illustrate it this way. I've told this story here before. It was at least a year and a half ago. I might have told it twice, but it's just one of my favorite pictures of what grace looks like. And so it's from the famous French novel, Les Mis. And so it's been made into a movie a few times. Maybe you've seen it. But it's about this man named Jean Valjean. And Jean Valjean, he's been in prison for 19 years after he stole a loaf of bread. And so after his stay in prison, he ends up at the house of a local bishop, Bishop Muriel. And against the bishop's maid's advice, the bishop feeds him, he invites him in, and he invites him to stay the night at his house. And so in the middle of the night, Valjean, he wakes up, he sneaks downstairs, he sneaks into the kitchen, he opens up the cabinet, and he grabs all the silver forks and spoons, he sticks them in a bag, and he walks out the door. The next morning, the bishop and his maid wake up, and they realize they've been robbed. And she says, I told you so. You should have never let him in. And while they're talking about this, they hear a knock on the door. And they open up the door, and they see Jean Valjean and two policemen standing with him. And he's holding that bag of silver forks and spoons. He's in handcuffs. And so imagine what's going through Valjean's mind. He's a convicted thief that just got caught stealing again. Surely he thinks he's done for. I'm going back to prison. There's nothing I can do. But if you've seen it before or read it, do you remember what the bishop says? He looks at Valjean and he says, ah, oh, there you are. I'm glad to see you. But how is this? I gave you the candlesticks too, which are of silver like the rest, for which you can certainly get 200 francs. Why did you not carry them away with your forks and spoons? 
You know, he doesn't say, thief, you stole my spoons and forks while I was sleeping. But what he says is, you forgot the candlesticks. You can get a pretty penny for those too. And so what it does is it takes the officers of Valjean by surprise. And so it was when Valjean was at his lowest, the most empty that he could be, that he had absolutely nothing to lose. And that's where he had an encounter with grace. And it changed his life. He was a broken man and he needed grace. And so this is why Jesus says that it's the people at the bottom that are his because they're the only people that have come to this realization that they need it. And so it's like we've been saying all morning, this is not how the world thinks. The world offers you a happy life, but there's always something attached to it. There's always these what ifs, right? You can be happy if you're successful, if you make a lot of money, if you're attractive, if you have a good enough resume, if you shake the right hands and know enough people. It, see, it's, it's a world of merit, right? It, it's, it's based on what you do. And more often than not, we take this logic and we apply it to God. God will bless me if I follow the rules. God will bless me if I do enough good things. God will bless me if I pray and read my Bible enough. And it keeps going, it keeps going. This world of merit. And the order that we think it is, is if I obey God, God will bless me. If I just obey God, God will bless me. That's what we think. But Jesus, he, he absolutely turns this on his head. Remember, he's preaching a sermon here. And so notice this about this passage. He's given this sermon, and before he talks about a single rule, before he talks about a single commandment, he declares his blessing on his people. Before he gives one single command, he declares to us his love, his favor, his blessing. And so this is the lesson here. The good life, the happy life, it can't be earned. It can only be received. The happy life can't be earned. It can only be received. And this is why he starts talking about our condition, our need. And so we see that the good life is a life that goes to God and says, I've got nothing. I've got nothing to impress you with. I've got nothing to bring to the table. And even the best things I've done in my life, they're filled with other motives. They're filled with pride, with self-congratulations. Again, you can't earn it. You can only receive it. And so it's a free offer. Everyone is invited to receive this gift. But he says there's one condition. You gotta have need. You gotta have need. And so God wants us to come to him with our need, with our brokenness, so that we can receive the riches of his grace. I'll close with this. This brings us to a really crucial question here. How can God do this? How can he give out his blessing on people who don't deserve it? Well, here's how. Before any of these beatitudes describe us, they're actually describing someone else. They describe Jesus. Jesus is the hero of the beatitudes. So think about Jesus. 2 Corinthians 8 9 says, Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Jesus was a mourner. He's described in the Bible as a man of sorrows, right? The shortest verse in the Bible says Jesus wept. He mourned the loss of his friend. He was a mourner. Jesus was meek. There's one place in all the scripture that describes Jesus' heart, and it says that he's gentle and lowly. It's literally the word for meek. It's literally the definition of meek, gentleness. 
And so what we see in the coming weeks as we go through this passage is that every single one of these eight Beatitudes, they're all descriptions of Jesus. He became all these things so that we could receive God's blessing. He was rejected so that God's love and favor could be placed on you without you ever doing anything to earn it. He experienced the pain of living in a fallen world so that we could live forever in bliss. He was betrayed by his friends. He was abused by soldiers. He was rejected by his own people so that we could be accepted by God. It was because of our sin that he was punished. He bore our punishment so that we could receive his reward. And so here's the thing. We could never earn it. We could never earn it. And so he did it for us. And so it's through his work that his righteousness, it's attributed to us as if it were our own. And so when God looks at us, he doesn't see Jeremy, this sinful, wicked person. He sees Jesus. And so we just sang it just a minute ago in Come You Sinners, that, that fourth line where it says, let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. And I love this. All the fitness he requires, all the, 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 the cleaning up of ourselves that, that we have to do, all the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. This he gives you, this he gives you. And so this is exactly why Jesus can say, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And so my question for you this morning is a simple one. It's a short question. Is will you come to God with need, and will you receive the good life? Let's pray.